Hey, pull up a chair. Tax on Tap with David Axelrod and Mike Murphy. As you may have noticed lately, the establishment's getting a little bit nervous. You betcha, Brother Murphy. <laughs> no kidding. It's the witching hour. Bernie Sanders is on a roll here. Yeah, and he's he's so Bernie, he can even go on 60 Minutes uh, a night or two ago and do a love letter to Fidel Castro and not pull it back at all the next day. We're feeling the burn here, but I'm not sure it's the kind of burn Democratic leaders want to feel. I want to reserve the discussion of that because I do think there is an anomaly here, which is everybody's freaking out, and yet Bernie continues to poll better. Uh, or at least as well as any other Democrat. I looked up his uh, Real Clear Politics average today, and mm-hmm. he was a tenth of a point stronger against Trump than Joe Biden. Now, that may be before everyone is exposed to the greatest hits of 50 years and yeah. the Castro stuff and Sandinistas and all of that will uh, disturb them. But humility is the order of the day, given what we saw in 2016. And Bernie Sanders is making a connection that is real. We, you know, there were polls out over the weekend, Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan and Wisconsin, where he ran as strong or stronger than anybody else. So it's fine to freak out, but one also has to try and understand why those polls are the way they are. Yeah, no, no, I'm I'm freaking out about the general election. <laughs> you know, I've, uh, I, no, I understand. No, no, I'm talking about his polls yeah, yeah, yeah. in the general election vis-a-vis Trump. Yeah, no, no, no. We're, we're saying the same thing. I, I, I think Bernie is the weakest, most risky candidate by a mile, but does that mean he's going to lose to Trump? He has this unique power of grievance, the same rocket that propelled Donald Trump. And and the rules in the modern era are almost anything can happen. And that Democrat nomination is worth a lot. I think a block of cement could get within two points of Trump. So, you know, but we can get on to the general. Do you want to go through the primary stuff first? Because, you know, we're doing this after Nevada. One of the reasons people are freaking out who don't want Bernie Sanders to be the nominee is that, uh, you know, in the first two contests, he got about a quarter of the vote. He sort of underperformed expectations. In Nevada, in these caucuses, and uh, I'll reserve my comments on caucuses for the last call, he overperformed. He basically vied with uh, Biden for moderate voters. He he uh, did pretty well with African-American voters. Biden won them, but uh, Bernie got his share. He did well with virtually every demographic except for uh, people over 65 for whom Socialism may have a different connotation for the young than for the young kids who mm-hmm. he carried with 65% of the vote. Yep. You know, Bernie's got a momentum and he's got a divided uh, field. Joe Biden got the second that he wanted, but it was such a distant second that it was almost meaningless. Bernie beat him two to one uh, in Nevada. And uh, now he moves on to South Carolina in a must win situation. Well, let's talk about Biden for a second. Where where do you think he's at right now? Well, the second place finish in Nevada, and by the way, I apologize to the good people of that state. I've been saying Nevada, and I keep getting mail, but for some reason I'm stuck on the wrong pronunciation. So Nevada, and I knew that. It's one of these things that just kind of stuck in my head. But anyway, Nevada, Nevada. Nevada was a crushing killing field for almost everybody. Biden got second place, which is the one bragging right. The Mayor Pete people were hoping they would get it. And so that 
that gives Biden a little bit of a prompt going into South Carolina. The problem is, and you know, we're only talking about 19 people here, but we did these recount.com focus groups, and you can start looking at them on their website uh, with Alyssa and I uh, uh, right after Alyssa New Hampshire. Monaco, yeah. yeah, exactly. Great Obama trooper, you know well. We had a bunch of people, two mixed groups, one all African-American, and there was there was affection for Biden, but no vote. It really looked like. Um, his South Carolina thing was unraveling really quick, and Bernie was rising, at least in those groups. So I think that the Bernie people are making the right play to try to break Biden in South Carolina. And even if Biden beats them by a point or two, the very fact they're tied, you know, Biden has no infrastructure to go forward. Now, if there was some, you know, uh, I don't know, great democratic uh, force of uh, control that appeared out of the heavens and said, all right, line up one candidate. If Biden can do okay in South Carolina, it would be him. But the turnaround to Super Tuesday is so fast. And I don't think any of these characters are going to get out, at least until the debate, which is sort of ridiculous for the uh, Amy Klobuchar's and Elizabeth Warren's. But the Democrats appear to be locked in this this dance where Biden is the strongest hope, and the voters have shown us so far that Biden is not that strong a hope. So it is a true perfect storm mess that's going to benefit Sanders. Well, let's uh, go one by one in Nevada. Uh, Biden got about 20 percent. Buttigieg, uh, this is in terms of, of of county delegates, which is how they right. they measure this. I think Biden ended up with two projected de- uh, national convention delegates. Biden, uh, Buttigieg got one. Buttigieg, the reason that he underperformed was the barrier that he's faced throughout, which is he did okay with Hispanic voters. He got 2% with African-Americans, according to the entrance poll. That does not bode well for him going into South Carolina. And uh, if you took the same percentages by group and and applied them to South Carolina and Buttigieg uh, performs the same way, with African-Americans in South Carolina, he's going to have a, a pretty rough night there. And then he's going to have uh, something to think about. Elizabeth Warren pulled another fourth. Yeah. And uh, that is a, this is the third time now that she's had great organization. She got in there early. And it underscores the thing that you and I both know. Maybe we think that as uh, as the message guys, but you know, field is important, but it's the field. Field is the field gold team. Organization is the field gold team. You have to get close yeah. enough to win the game for them to kick the winning field goal. If you don't get down the field, yeah. if your campaign isn't strong enough, then the organization can only do so much. Yeah, message rules. I, I don't care how many organizers you have if they don't want the product. Uh, and that is the problem that Elizabeth Warren has. And she's, you know, I, I focus on her for a minute because it's really kind of weird. Uh, she hasn't been able to get any votes. She was formidable in the last debate chasing Bloomberg around the stage, clearly doing more damage to him than helping herself. And the last problem she has on earth right now is Michael Bloomberg. They all have the same problem. We're at this this point in the race where the only thing that counts is slowing Bernie down, yet they're still playing the lane games on each other. Now, maybe this debate coming up this week will be different, but for Warren to come out and just shellac, I know what she's thinking. The better I am beating on Bloomberg, the more people will love me, but they tested that in Nevada. It didn't work. So I'm not sure why she's in the race anymore. One glimmer of hope, hope she may seize from that is she did she did pretty well among the late breaking voters there, and there is some theory that a lot of early voters missed the debate. They voted before the debate, and that she got a little momentum 
off of that debate. That's the straw she might grasp at. And if she does, then I expect she'll do more of what she did in Nevada uh, on Tuesday in South Carolina. And she'll go after Bloomberg in the debate, hoping to turbocharge the progressive base and take some of those votes from Bernie. But it's a it's a tough bank shot. The, the weird thing is she continues to poll, you know, well, uh, nationally. She, uh, you know, there was a CBS uh, uh tracker yesterday that had her second to Bernie, ahead of Biden, ahead of Bloomberg, a distant second for sure, nine points behind. And that may give her encouragement. But the fact of the matter is you can't fourth place your way to the nomination and you can't raise money that way. Yeah, that uh, candidates never get out because they want to. They get out because they're broke and the campaign is just kind of suffocated. The problem is for a lot of these people, that's going to come on March 5th if they keep thinking the way they're thinking. I mean, even even California, there's all this talk about who can mount a campaign here. The bulk of the, the vote in the primary is absentee vote by mail. And 10, 11, 12 percent of those votes are already cast. Now, people do hold their absentee till late, but late is now. So, you know, you're going to see a massive amount of California absentees coming in in, in the next 10 days. And there's just not a lot of time. So it, it tends to freeze what is and what is right now is Bernie. I mean, they desperately need one opposition candidate. But again, I'm flashing back to 16. What, what happens is you, you, you have your Bernie or your Trump coming on for plurality and you're focused on, all right, we got to beat other voters like uh, other candidates like us to get other voters who like us because those voters don't want Trump. We're never going to get voters off Trump. So the best return on the dollar is to go bang on, you know, your competition. And that's why you have this Pete v. Amy stuff and, and, and everything else. Um, there's not enough time for that strategy to work because it requires forever. And But you know how candidates are. They're always obsessed on the next objective, do well in the debate, raise a million on the phone call. Uh, nobody's figuring it out because it's so hard in the confirmation bubble to face it that we're, we're all going to be dead after Super Tuesday. So maybe die for the cause early to try to unify things. But, you know. Yeah, well, one, one guy who's they don't do uh, it. apparently figured it out is Pete because he spent most of his uh, speech on Saturday night after the caucuses. Uh, yeah going after Bernie Sanders. Let's listen to a little of that. And that is a real difference from Senator Sanders' revolution with the tenor of combat and division and polarization leading to a future where whoever wins the day, nothing changes the toxic tone of our politics. I believe the only way to truly deliver any of the progressive changes that we care about is to be a nominee who actually gives a damn about the effect you are having from the top of the ticket on those critical frontline House and Senate Democrats that we need to win. The presidency is not the only office that matters, and we have got to support those frontline races because we need them to win in order to make sure that this agenda that we have is more than just words on a page. So there you have it. Pete, Pete Buttigieg said uh, what a lot of Democrats are saying privately, but it's going to become a much more public debate, which is uh, whether the party, not just the presidency is in jeopardy, but will the House be in jeopardy because uh of uh, Bernie Sanders and other down ballot uh and other down ballot races. Yeah, I, I thought that was the perfect speech if he'd finished a strong second form up the race, which is what they wanted. Yeah. Well maybe he didn't have time to rewrite it. I don't know. 
Yeah, no, no, it's the only speech you could give. So I thought it was the right move strategically. But, the you know, Pete has been a fascinating case because the old momentum theory, when you do well in Iowa and New Hampshire, that has been true for so long, for whatever reason, Pete never got the bounce after well, New he got Hampshire screwed for in part. He got screwed in part by Iowa because if he had been announced as the winner that night, and there hadn't been any questions about the Iowa caucuses. Right, he right, might have right. gotten that, more that of a bounce out of it. But he, he really and, – and he got screwed a second time uh, right. in, in New Hampshire because Amy Klobuchar performed so well in the debate there. She surged at the end. Had she not, there's no doubt that Pete would have uh, – Buttigieg would have beaten Sanders in New Hampshire where Sanders badly underperformed. But as we've said here before, first of all, I'm reminded uh, – if uh, of what James Carville always used to say, which is if if some butts were sugar and nuts, we'd have ourselves a party. Uh, uh, you know, the, the he should sing that. I, I smell a country hit. But, uh, <laughs> the uh, maybe it's candy and nuts. But the point is, uh, he he didn't. Bernie then lucked out as a result of that, and and winning begets uh, winning. Uh, and so I, I think right. as. A, Pete Buttigieg has, has greatly overperformed, you know, probably more than any other candidate expectations. And he's in this got race. nothing. Yeah, but he's, you know, and he's running out of runway here, and we'll see what happens yeah. in South Carolina. I, Amy, I, Amy, I just want to echo that point for a minute, and I'm going to talk about it in my last call. But, you know, the, the candidate who got the New Hampshire bump was Bloomberg, who was totally hypothetical. They immediately lined him up against Bernie. Um, and then the debate. So the way the media is covering it this time is different and a little too clever and too postmodern by half, I think. And I'll be talking about that more. Amy is another thing, a weak third place in New Hampshire, because as you say, it fit the narrative of the debate. And there's always the ghost of identity lurking around. You know, we've had this situation where the, the two strong female candidates are getting a quarter of the vote from electorates that are more than half women. Yet the process media is still focused so much on identity and gender that Amy got a little more attention, I think, she deserved. And again, it went nowhere because there's no campaign now behind it. But anyway, so here we are. Yeah, she she was more than a week third. I mean, she she did fairly well in New Hampshire, but it's very hard to build. You know, we all get seduced by these uh, second and third place finishes. It's very hard to build a nomination around second and third yep. place. You have to start winning. She did very poorly in Nevada. And it really seems likely that she's going to do poorly again in South Carolina. And both she and Warren have a particular concern. I think you hinted at it earlier, which is their states are in the Super Tuesday mix. Mm -hmm. And uh, polling shows them both vying for the lead with Bernie Sanders. I don't think either of them want to lose their home state to to Sanders. And so I don't know if that'll be a consideration, but, it, but certainly for Klobuchar, who's built her whole campaign around how invincible she is in her home state. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A loss to Bernie there would be a real uh, rebuke, and she may run out of money. I guarantee you there's some staffer right now sitting down gingerly with Amy putting on a catcher's uh, mask and explaining that we really don't want to go up against Bernie in Minnesota after losing a couple more primaries, uh, which is the tough truth she needs to hear in her own interest. Yeah, not necessarily in the staffer's interest, but that's a <laughs> different story. Let's project forward because, as you point out, there was this sort of growing conventional wisdom consensus that Bloomberg, by dint of all this spending and all the progress he had made, was the guy who could coalesce the sort of center-left forces and take Bernie on. 
And then, you know, the Wizard of Oz moment came. He stepped out from behind the curtain in the debate, and it was a disaster, as we talked about last time. And now everybody's rethinking. And the the new conventional wisdom is that if we could just rehabilitate Biden in South Carolina, if he wins there and can move forward, you know, uh, maybe we can we can get people to coalesce around him. Maybe Mike would drop out. I don't think that's going to happen uh, in uh, in on Super Tuesday because Biden has yet to really show his his chops here. So you see a rallying around him in the South Carolina piece. Jim Clyburn was on uh, Sunday shows over the weekend and intimating that he'll make an endorsement. Apparently, he's going to this week. As you know, Clyburn is the voice in uh, black Democratic politics in South Carolina. An endorsement of Biden would presumably be a significant thing and might get him across the finish line. But then where are you? Uh, If you have Biden and Bloomberg going in, it seems to me Bernie would be fine with that. Yeah, I think Bernie's happy. And, um, you know, what you need is a candidate mentality of sacrifice for somebody else's ambition to stop Bernie. And that is psychology that most candidates who've been forcing themselves to this, you know, tough, tough process don't have. I mean, ideally right now, Bloomberg would, would pick up the phone and you know, yell tor tor tora into the into the handset, and the Bloomberg television machine would switch to beating the hell out of Bernie, try to start pushing him down, uh, uh, you know, as much as they could. I think Bernie's vote is pretty locked. I'm not sure you'd move it down that much, but you could slow the momentum. And Joe's got his chance in his best theoretical state of South Carolina to have a big win and be captain momentum. I, I think others might drop out the next day, but Super Tuesday comes so quickly. And uh, half that California vote or more will already be cast um, by by uh, the night of um, uh, the results are in the next day at, in South Carolina. So it's just hard to see a realistic scenario now where they get lined up for Super Tuesday with resources. Yeah, you know, Biden is, in fairness to him, you know, he continues to poll reasonably well in some of the big uh, Super Tuesday states. I mean, he, he will he will he will get some delegates as will uh, Bloomberg, but. The the real question now for Democrats is, and it was asked on the debate stage last week, if Bernie Sanders is the uh, uh, is the runaway delegate leader, uh, even if he doesn't get the nineteen hundred ninety one votes, uh, nineteen hundred ninety one delegates that he needs to 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 capture a majority, uh, how do you deny him uh, the nomination? It is much tougher if there isn't a an obvious second place finisher who is who is close enough to Bernie to make a straight face claim. I mean, the other very difficult argument is well, in the aggregate, all these people were against him, and their democrat, you know, they'll po- pool their delegates together and and they'll uh, beat him. But you know, there's a great cost uh, to that, and nobody is more aware of that than. Donald Trump, who is along apparently with the Russians, uh, if uh, the intel is right, stirring the pot here. Here's uh, what he had to say the day after the Nevada caucuses. It was a great win for Bernie Sanders. Uh, We'll see how it all turns out. They've got a lot of winning to do. Uh, I hope they treat him fairly. Frankly, I don't care who I run against. I just hope they treat him fairly. I hope it's not going to be a rigged deal. Because there's a lot of bad things going on, and I hope it's not going to be one of those. So we'll see what happens. But I congratulate Bernie Sanders. 
And if it's going to be him, he certainly has a substantial lead. We'll see what happens. Really magnanimous of the oh, of course uh, of the president. Yeah. You know what always amazes me about, about Donald Trump? His remarks are always framed and uh, reflect his worldview that everything is corrupt. Yeah. He always starts with corruption and a fix, which is very telling about who he is. But but he's also stirring the pot with those Bernie supporters who share, of course, who sh- uh, some of whom share that suspicion that the system is rigged, that Bernie it was rigged against him last time. It's rigged against him. This time, and I got to believe without knowing that some of that huge digital spend that they're engaged in is also aimed at uh, reaching uh, Bernie supporters to fuel this notion that the Democrats are going to cheat Bernie out of this nomination that he is that he is earning because Trump's look, either Trump ends up with Bernie Sanders as an opponent, uh, which he may welcome. Uh, and again, we, we need to talk about whether he should, but he may, uh, and, no, but you're, you're, and, and or he ends up with someone else and a chance to fracture the democratic party by uh, joining the chorus that says the nomination was stolen from Bernie, uh, by, uh, you know, uh, pernicious, uh, plotting on the part of the Democratic establishment. Yeah, it's in Trump's interest to start the general election against Bernie right now, and it's in Bernie's interest, too. You know, once again, Trump is like Bernie's racist cousin, different but from the same family tree of grievance, and their troops are very happy to dig in against each other and freeze the race. So, you know, Trump and Bernie, I think, would would both like to start slugging out like Bernie's a presumptive nominee of the party, which is yet another way to, you know, twist off the oxygen to these these other candidates who are trying to catch him. I, I think just as we wrap up on the primary and then we can we can talk about the general. Paul Krugman had a, a, a tweet over the weekend that I think was really important. And he said, whether you disagree with Bernie Sanders on his positions or not, the com- comparisons with Trump are wrong because at the end of the day, Bernie believes in democracy and the supports democratic institutions. And that is a very, very big difference. I think that Democrats are going to have to face that if Bernie Sanders is elected. First of all, for all of the hand-wringing about some of his positions, very few of them are going to be what a United States Congress would enact. Okay, so that uh, And secondly, he would actually send them to the United States Congress to enact them, and he would, from all I can see, abide by, you know, rules and laws and norms and and institutions. That seems like a big difference from what we're seeing from Trump. And so I find it kind of confounding that when I get these emails from Democrats saying, well, if it's Bernie, I'm going to have to vote for Trump or I'm going to walk away, because it seems like those issues of the, the, the sort of survival of democratic institutions is a pretty important question. Yeah, no, and I am with you on that. It's more the tree of grievance. There, Trump is uh, he is unfit, and he doesn't believe in the rule of law. Bernie does, um, uh, at least until they play the international. Then I get worried. But yes, <laughs> fundamentally, uh, B- Bernie is the the worst of the right on the tr- Trump question. But isn't it amazing that we're in a position where one of the best Democratic arguments of Bernie's the nominee is vote for our guy. Don't worry, none of his stuff will happen. And to his supporters. You know, you call it grievance, and there is no doubt that his rhetoric is an edgy rhetoric. Um, <laughs> but the aspiration that people should have health care, the aspiration that people should get edu- be able to get education, 
you know, the aspiration that people ought to be able to uh, get uh, support their family through the work that they do. Those are not all that radical a notion. And for these young people who are supporting them, uh, those should be sort of table stakes for a healthy functioning society and democracy. So, you know, you hear it one way and a lot of people hear it one way. They hear it another way. Uh, the question is, can he find a way to in any way subtly shift his rhetoric without changing his principles to make it a little more welcoming to people who are uh, worried about him right now? And I don't know the answer to that. You know, he, he's had a lot of chances uh, you pointed out on 60 Minutes and elsewhere yep. uh, to do that. If he's engaged in that project, he, he hasn't particularly launched it yet. Yeah, I don't think he's like, again, like Trump, he's not that flexible about his pitch. It, it is what it is. I've been waiting for him to finish with the proven hit, Peace, Bread, and Land, but he hasn't gone that far yet. But let, let's talk about the nomination one more beat, and then we we can talk about can Bernie win, because I think we're both kind of contrarians that, yes, he could. If Let's say it's Super Tuesday. Biden, we're, 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 we're hold off on the totally plausible scenario that Bernie wins South Carolina and crushes his way all the way. But if Partly because of Biden's Tom Steyer, have, by the way, which, you know, Steyer spent t- yeah. a fortune in South Carolina and is actually in polls, you know, hovering around uh, Sanders and for second place. And he's taking a lot of black votes right now, which Clyburn's endorsement yeah. may change, but he's taking a lot of black votes from uh, Joe Biden right now. I have a feeling that that'll collapse as the stakes get higher. And Steyer had spent a ton in Nevada too, um, but Nevada. But um, Dan, you're right. You're right. He's in the polling right now. You were right doing now. so well. I was doing so well. I'm going to get another letter. But leaving for a moment the Nevada caucuses. Yeah. If if we have a, a mostly Bernie, but a few a few places maybe you know I, I don't want to get to we'll be here forever on it, but. The question is, is there any scenario where a single candidate can dominate enough in the post-Super Tuesday states, of which there are plenty, industrial Midwest, New York, other other places are coming, uh, to catch up to Bernie in the math? And and to me, unless you're looking at somebody winning like 85% of the delegates out of nowhere stopping Bernie, which is just hard to imagine, it looks really tough. There will be some drama there. Somebody, I think, might have a dead cat bounce for a while. But uh, it, it, the way the Democratic nomination, you know, math works, it, uh, it, if you can hang on to that 30 percent, it's really tough. That's right. And again, I think at this point, there are very few people who are arguing that someone can actually beat Bernie. Uh, and I think after Super Tuesday, that, that's going to fade, uh, fade away, beat him for a plurality, for the plurality. The question is, how close does he come to 1991? And how close does a second place finisher come to him? And, uh, you know, I, I mean, my buddy David Pluff said, you know, whoever's the delegate leader needs to be uh, the nominee or the party will split apart. Um, I, I think that is true if that leader is a strong leader and the second place person is far behind. Um, the other calculation that Democrats are going to have to make is, in fact, whether Bernie jeopardizes down ballot candidates, you know, yep, exactly. the, you know, they, the place where he theoretically will be weakest, and there's some evidence of it in in these early contests, would be in these suburban areas where Democrats did the best in 2018, right. with moderate candidates. And uh, I would guess not one of them is that eager to invite Bernie Sanders into their districts to campaign for them. 
And they, he is going to be, he is going to, you know, hang from them like the anchor from the Lusitania, you know, uh, so. <laughs> Which dovetails with Trump, because if Trump can get the suburbs back, he's back in business. Yeah. So that is the argument. That's the, that's the argument against Bernie. The argument for him is that he does make inroads with voters who have drifted from the Democratic Party. He does inspire young people and would inspire probably a much larger turnout among young people. And the question is, does it all net out, particularly in these battleground states, which are older and whiter, less educated states? Does it all net out in uh, in his favor? And uh, I think no one's really sitting down and doing the math now. Everybody is supposing that if, you know, once the Trump people put a, a billion dollars plus Trump's big bullhorn against some of Bernie's greatest hits, that Bernie will be disqualified and it will be a McGovern-like route. We're a very polarized country, even more so than we were in 1972, by party and region and so on. I think a McGovern-style route is hard to imagine. But California, for example, alone, you know, I don't think there's any danger of Democrats losing. That's saying there isn't any danger of them losing many others. But in those battleground states, the question is, can he, can he compete? Yeah, I think what people are forgetting about Bernie is his basic populist pitch, big drug companies, health insurance, wages, $15. I've seen data on that in Michigan, and it sells pretty well. So if Bernie can keep it about fire Trump and his populism, I think he's in the hunt. His authenticity, too, is something people are craving for. Huge, huge. And you people know, it's don't people really don't, rocket fuel. That is a key and, to his his appeal. I mean, it seems to yeah, me, yeah, is, yeah, yeah. you may not like what he says, but you don't believe that he doesn't believe it. The question, I think, is on paper, Bernie is the kind of guy that Trump can really change the subject of the election from fire Trump to, hey, look at this guy. And that'll drive the Trump base vote to the moon because he's going to be very scary. It's going to scare suburban, squishy independents and and moderates and and country club Republicans who hold their nose at Trump and defected in the last congressional cycle. It's going to scare the hell out of them economically because Bernie's coming for your vacation home or your, your BMW. We're all going to be driving Yugos. And that is a huge cudgel. And so some of it will come down to can Bernie keep the discussion on Trump? Now, in some ways, Bernie's good at that because, you know, you ask him what he wants for breakfast, you're going to hear about the big pharma companies. He's very good at just pounding his one hit over and over again. And he never apologizes and he never retreats. That is exactly the mentality to stay on the attack. But you know, there, there's just stuff in Bernie's background as people learn more about him and he gets a second and third look that's going to be a real headwind. That's why I think he's so risky. But we might have that experiment. And you can argue that, you know, we look back and we might have a lost decade of Trumpism and Sanderism here because there, there is a connection between the power behind it all. So I don't know. I don't know. But it, it's going to be scary. I mean, the question is really at the end of that decade, where are we? Where are institutions? Yeah. Speaking Chinese. <laughs> At least not Russian, you know? I guess it's progress. We touched on this lightly, but what do you anticipate? I mean, it seems to me this debate on Tuesday, in certain ways, is, is sort of a, even though he has a, a vast fortune behind him, is kind of a make or break sort of situation yeah. for Bloomberg. I mean, he can't yeah. have another performance like he had next week. My guess is his people are telling him that it's better to be the stick than the pinata and go on the attack uh, instead of be attacked, and that you'll see some of that. But 
man, he needs he needs a uh, quantum leap in performance on Tuesday, or the uh, the sort of negative buzz that he he uh, started with the Nevada debate could continue and and really cap him. Yeah, I tell you, you know, it, it, it's ironic. They, they have a muscular campaign, but so far they don't have a candidate. And it is make or break. On, on one hand, he's got low expectations. I mean, he can only do better. He did that brilliantly, I think, yeah. So the question is, can he step it up enough to get a marked increase? Otherwise, the the rationale for his candidacy goes up in smoke because, you know, if he's if he's an awful candidate and he can't function in a open arena like that with journalistic questions and other candidates competing, then he's purely a Bernie spoiler with all his money. And the numbers are just going to go to hell on him as the media narrative gets worse and worse. So, yeah, they've got the benefit of being in what every campaign often could use, tremendous strategic clarity. He needs a good debate, one thing, and he needs to really, really engage Bernie and win that engagement. And I would argue that Biden also needs to uh, he needs to up his game. He did fine in the last debate, I thought, partly because he wasn't uh, he wasn't in the center ring. Uh, it was really Bloomberg and Bernie who were, and maybe that'll be the same here uh, as well. But you know, his debate performances have been, as we've beaten to death here, uh, less than stellar. And if he's auditioning for the lead role here of a guy who can beat Bernie. Uh, he needs to look like the guy who can beat Bernie. Yeah, I'd actually, I would, and this is a little risky, but I, if I were Biden, because he's all heart, because I, I, I think he'd execute this well, I'd be tempted to tell him to do a dramatic moment where he turns to Amy and Pete and says, look, you got to join my campaign and you got to do it tonight. Because um, we're ninety percent aligned on the issues, we're we're you know in the more center lane in the Democratic Party. We need a united front. We all took our best shot. I'm leading in South Carolina, and then they both say no, which really undercuts the rationale for their candidacy because then it clearly becomes about them, them, them. I think he needs a few big dramatic moments like that to own the coverage of the debate. Yeah, well, the the danger of that is that one of them turns to him and says, "You know what? I would love to do that if you had shown that you could do this." that you could carry the torch here. Uh, I would march behind you, Mr. Vice President, but we're here because that hasn't been the case. Right, but he could say, I just beat both of you in Nevada, and in six days or five days, I'm going to beat you uh, in South Carolina. We only have three days of Super Tuesday, so you've got to choose between your ego and the, and the party. Yeah, be good. Um, you know, just to, just to, then the whole debate would be Biden demands unity. Biden, now he's the leader of anti-Bernie. Um, he could make the same argument to Mike. Uh, it just p- puts them all in the defensive going in and makes him a star, which he desperately needs. But anyway, it you know, who woulda, shoulda, coulda. If he could pull it off, it would be a really bold move. One of the things we've seen is that his agility is not that great in these debates. True. And so pulling that moment off in the way that you describe it looks good on the chalkboard, but you don't know whether your player can uh, can execute it. Uh, yeah, no, yeah, listen, but, but he can, I think one of the things him. that you're going to hear a lot about Bloomberg here, a lot of the incoming on Bloomberg is going to be around race and in South yeah. Carolina in particular, but that is going to reverberate in other uh, states. Yeah, and I, I agree. I would just, if I were Joe, I'd put the ball in the air because you don't have a lot to lose right now. Yeah. You know, Gibbs, every once in a while uh, on Twitter, people will write in and say, Axe, you make me nauseous, but nausea is nothing to joke about. 
it's like getting stuck in the back of a car and you're kind of a little bit hemmed in and you just you get that feeling and it starts in your stomach it's not yeah a good and, and and like you're on your way to something good a, a celebration or party or something and now you're nauseous and you can't get rid of it except there is an answer now and it's called relief band tell us about relief band Relief Band is the number one FDA-cleared anti-nausea wristband that has been clinically proven to quickly relieve and effectively prevent nausea and vomiting associated with motion sickness, anxiety, migraines, hangovers, morning sickness, chemotherapy, and so much more. The product is 100% drug-free, non-drowsy, and provides all-natural relief with zero side effects, zero for as long as needed. The technology was originally developed over 20 years ago in hospitals to relieve nausea from patients, but now through Relief Band, it's available to all of us. Here's how it works with Relief Band. It stimulates a nerve in the wrist that travels to the part of the brain that controls nausea. Then it blocks the signal your brain is sending to your stomach telling you that you're sick. Relief Band is the only over-the-counter wearable device that has been used in hospitals and oncology clinics to treat nausea and vomiting. If you know somebody who deals with nausea, Relief Band makes a great gift. I'm telling you, Relief Band works. We know from our own experience, we sent one to our engineer who often gets nauseous during our shows, and he reports 100% cure. Don't fall for those cheap bands you see in drugstores or on your Instagram feed. All right. Right now, Relief Band has an exclusive offer just for our Hacks listeners. If you go to ReliefBand.com and use promo code HACKS, you'll receive 20% off plus free shipping and a no questions asked 30-day money-back guarantee. So head to ReliefBand, R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D, Dot com and use our promo code HACKS for 20% off plus free shipping. We've been so wrapped up, Murphy, in the Democratic primary that we haven't given any due to the, you know, the weekly sliding into autocracy section of the program, uh, monitoring what our president is up to, which has gotten more feverish ever since the acquittal from the, the Senate. He appointed his body man as, as his personnel director. We learned this week that his main job is to ensure loyalty to Trump across the federal bureaucracy. He fired the DNI or eased him out earlier than he was going to leave the acting DNI for briefing Congress on what the Russians uh, were up to. And then he hired Rick Rennell, the old right-wing uh, Gadfly, who's ambassador to Germany now, former spokesperson for the UN ambassador during the Bush years. He made him head of uh, national intelligence, the first time that anyone without any deep background in that area took over. And loyalty seemed to be the order of the day there. And then there are the spats with uh, Attorney General Barr uh, over Roger Stone. And, you know, presumably Barr wasn't real thrilled about the issuance of pardons and clemencies for people who weren't reviewed by the Justice Department. It's just a, that's just a week in the life. He's been busy, you know. Um, they, the personnel thing is becoming the real story here. Everybody's acting because nobody can get approved, and even by the Republican Senate. And, you know, it's a drag festival. It's a convention of dregs. I think Hannity ought to dust off his resume and get ready for state or defense. I don't think he needs to dust it off, and I don't think he needs a resume. <laughs> well, clearly, I think he's got everything he needs if he wants it. that job. Uh, but he may be more valuable to Trump uh, where he is as a advisor without portfolio and man with show every night on Fox. Oh, it's clearly the direct channel in. But I, I do think we are seeing an effect here. 
post-impeachment and potentially post-Bernie, the president is getting super emboldened. Um, it's like the leash has been snapped off and he's running wild. And as he gets into the adrenaline-fueled madness of a campaign, I think we're going to see what I like to call the Trump swings of, of, of craziness get even bigger and bigger. Yeah, the question is whether anybody gives a damn. I mean, his numbers have risen uh, ever so slightly uh, throughout this period. And, uh, you know, I did a, we, I, I sat through a focus group with Trump voters in Peoria uh, last week. Uh, for the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago. This was part of our Bridging the Divide program uh, there. And uh, the solidity of their support was striking, as was the fact that they were just regurgitating Trump memes, uh, you know, about the media, about his opponents, and very forgiving of his uh, foibles. Now, they're not the people who are going to decide the election. It's the people on Mm -hmm. the edges who are uh, who are persuadable one way or the other, small group but important group. But nonetheless, uh, you know, it, it, was, uh, it was a very, very sobering, uh, from the standpoint of, of any Democrat, it would be a sobering session, but also enlightening, give people a sense of, of why he has this connection uh, with his constituency. You know, one thing I wanted to mention to you, this coronavirus deal uh, and how the Chinese have handled it, and the sort of blanket of, uh, of information, you know, the freeze of information in China, the mm-hmm. punishment of officials who disgorged information and so on. It is a little taste of what happens when you have a society without the free flow of information. Just a, a note that people should store away as they consider their choices. Yeah, losing the truth is like boiling a lobster. You, you don't really miss it till it's too late if you're the lobster. And... Uh, it's kind of the trend of this century. You know, in the last century, the trend was globalization and in politics, the increase of freedom and democracy. But there's no doubt that the objective truth is under attack now. And people in their tribes reward that. They like it. It's a security blanket. And I think it's one of the biggest fundamental threats to our democracy and, frankly, to freedom around the world. And uh, uh, it, it troubles me more than almost anything. Thank God for Hacks on Tap. We are a high lantern, a rare beacon here uh, through the podcasting airwaves. Well, let, let's go to the mailbag and see what some of our listeners are interested in. It's listener mailbag. Eric, and first of all, apologies to Dave, a friend of ours in Hollywood who's a head writer on the Big Bang Theory, uh, sent a smart question in. But we already answered it, basically, about Democrats fighting about each other and not unifying. So I think we covered that, Dave. We're expecting some Big Bang Theory chum here at the uh, podcast. Now, <laughs> I was wondering what you were up to there. Yeah, no, no, exactly. He's a, he's a, he's a great American. So Eric asked, Mr. Axelrod, why doesn't Bloomberg launch a $200 million or so, Eric's willing to let him go up or down by about $20 million, uh, media assault, negative ads, a la what the Republicans will do on Bernie right now. What does Bloomberg have to lose? He's got money and he's got a problem. Why not, why not let slip the dogs of negative advertising on Bernie El Pronto? Well, look, there is an argument for that, clearly, but... If you're sitting over there and you still harbor the uh, notion of being the nominee, uh, your concern is doing that work and driving voters to someone else. If Joe Biden is still in the race after South Carolina, he wins the South Carolina primary, he goes on. He, He could well be the beneficiary of those attacks. And Bloomberg is clearly, you know, he's in the race, not just 
to run ads, but to try and be the nominee. So if they have a hesitance, that's what the hesitance is. We've seen what happens when one launches an attack in a multi-candidate field. It is fraught with peril. Now, the question is where you think you really are and how much you really think you're risking here. And that's an assessment they're going to have to make, and they'll probably make it after South Carolina. Yeah, I totally agree. It's very hard to go to a candidate and say, all right, you've worked really hard. I'd like to take a lot of your money and help somebody you think so little of you ran against them. Strategically, if you want to stop Bernie, the question is, is that more important than people's own ambition? And so far, those tumblers have not clicked. No names were mentioned in this question, uh, Mike, but uh, another guy named Mike wrote in and said, after watching these debates How can some candidates look so unprepared for the obvious questions they were going to get? I assume that was a Bloomberg reference, but go ahead, you know, because everybody says, gee, that was obvious until they have to get up on the stage and deliver. Uh, (laughs) My my guess is that, that, uh, that he had some better material prepared than we saw that night. Yeah, candidate staffs are always frustrated because they've always got a lot of brilliant ideas about what the candidate ought to say, but they watch the debate in a chair eating peanuts. You know, they're not there uh, naked on a rock with the country judging them. Look, we some candidates cotton to debate prep more than others. These are strong-willed people, and some debate prep is better than others. My guess is Bloomberg was prepped to the extent Mike Bloomberg, who's kind of an alpha who runs a lot of his own show himself, including politically— wanted to be prep. But what we saw was an important part of debate prep. It is not uncommon for the first time they go out to be a little more confident than they ought to be and then get roughed up and figure out, oh, hell, this is dinner theater, and I don't know how to sing, you know, Hello, Dolly. And then the second time, having thus been broken down a little bit, they're a lot more receptive. So I'll be watching to see if there is a significant Bloomberg improvement, because nothing's more important to that campaign. And that'll tell me if he's ready to start accepting prep, because the questioner is right. Most of those questions were obvious. They were coming from five miles away. They knew, and they just, you know, more or less were not prepared. He did take, uh, he did take our advice and agreed to uh, release at least the three women who had complaints about him True. from their NDAs, which he had to do uh, before this debate. I don't think that will stop Elizabeth Warren from continuing to uh, attack him on this, but at least they took a proactive step there. Look, I'm very familiar with what it's like to be a staffer when the candidate doesn't perform the way you'd like. I had many, many great nights watching Barack Obama debate and one really terrible one in the fall of 2012, his first debate with Mitt Romney in Denver. And, you know, we kind of had it circled on the calendar as a likely tough night because uh, he hadn't debated for four years. Presidents aren't used to having people in their grill. Neither are billionaires, by the way. And so, you know, we, we prepped the hell out of that, but he just uh, wasn't really receptive. Uh, and it took a very, very tough night to get him to refocus and to reorient himself to being back in the mix of debates. And he did very, very well in the last two debates. But, um, you know, you can, you can know what's coming, you can prepare, but uh, when a candidate's on the stage, they have to react. And for a candidate who has not done it before, as Bloomberg had not, and we talked about this last week, not having the, the you know, not being in mid-season form, not having any spring training, not really being prepared for what it really feels like to be out there with these other candidates who are all very torqued up is difficult. 
And we'll see if what he's learned, the turnaround wasn't very long. He hasn't had that much time to, to, to prepare for this one, but he needs a good night. And uh, they know he needs a good night, and we'll see how much he's learned. Absolutely. No, nothing clears your mind for debate training like getting stomped in a debate. So we'll see what happens. Last call. Well, here's the music. Axe, last call. Something on your chest? Yeah, man. I'm, what's on my chest is probably what's on the chest of a lot of other people, which is it's time for the caucuses to push up the crocuses, man. Let's put them... <laughs> In their grave. You know, they once again, uh, you know, you wake up on uh, the day after the caucuses and they still haven't counted 50 percent of the vote. And it's a crazy, you know, I, I, I so appreciated the Iowa caucuses when we won them in 2008. It was a wonderful experience. I love the state of Iowa. But, you know, in terms of uh, the process itself, now that the spotlight is turned on the counting, which wasn't really true in the past and the process of counting. And now that it's become more complex and candidates like Sanders have demanded popular vote as well as delegate vote, it's just become too burdensome. And uh, we ought to just have primaries and we ought to have prime and we also ought to have primaries, uh, you know, on a rotating basis or in a combined basis so that, you know, we have a diverse electorate voting in those, uh, in, in all of those early contests or in the the amalgam of them on one day. Caucus smockus. I agree. I agree enough already. Though the problem is there's room pre-New Hampshire for something that's a caucus because New Hampshire won't tolerate a primary. And there's just such a media edge that some candidate somewhere like Carter did originally with the Iowa caucus may go invent it. But I, I take your point and I love your line. Caucuses pushing up crocuses. Yeah, we have to do uh, it. What's on, what's on your mind? Well, I've got something on my chest, too. This is to my friends in the political process media and a lot of our fellow bloviators on cable TV. Enough already with outsmarting the process. Follow the voters. Follow the winners and losers. Bloomberg, as I said earlier, got the New Hampshire bump in many ways because of the hypothetical idea that he'd line up against Sanders with all that money. Now, granted, he spent a lot on unopposed advertising, and, he, and he's got a story to tell. He's done a lot, and he did raise his national polling numbers. But the, the focus ought to be what the voters did over the last few days. And that, I think, in Iowa and New Hampshire got lost into a lot of talk about process, a legit story. There were problems, but it got lost in identity. Um, just just give us the results and focus on that, who won and who lost in the actual voting, and a little less on all the overthink and the forecasting and the hypothetical future projecting. You're absolutely right. I mean, you know, the fact is humility, and I said this earlier relative to Bernie Sanders and whether he can win, uh, humility is an important quality, particularly in the volatile nature of today's politics. And uh, so we ought to get out of the forecasting business and, and into the interpreting of what happened to try and understand what messages voters are sending and not uh, uh, retrofitting those messages to whatever our particular theories are. And uh, hopefully we can do more of that here. Absolutely. Yeah, we we were early on. We were both thinking Warren and we were wrong about that one. Yeah, we were. We were. We don't have to catalog everything we were wrong about here. I, we, I <laughs> yeah, was just coming in. For, always I was right. just coming in for a soft landing. Anyway, brother, <laughs> we got we got a debate Tuesday night. We've got the uh, very important South Carolina primary on Saturday, and then on to Super Tuesday. So uh, much to talk about in the days to come. Looking forward to it, pal. 
Thanks again. See you later.